everyone. This is Katie from the Silver Screen Queens podcast. We wanted to let you know that we are hosting a special screening of Star Wars The Force Awakens on December 18th at 9pm. That's just one day after the movie comes out in theatres. We'd love to see all of you dressed up in your best Star Wars costumes so that you can enjoy the movie with some fellow geeks. After the screening, we'll be recording a live episode of the podcast and a Q&A where we will A all of your burning Star Wars cues. The screening will take place at Palace Electric Cinemas in Canberra. Tickets cost $17 plus a booking fee and can be found via links on the Silver Screen Queen's website or on our Facebook page. Can't wait to see you there. Hi, and welcome to the Silver Screen Queen's podcast. Every week we watch a movie and sit down here to talk about it. I'm Mel. I'm Katie. And we're your hosts. This week, we watched Home Alone, directed by Chris Columbus and released in 1990. The plot goes something like this. An eight-year-old boy is accidentally left home alone when his family leaves for their Christmas holiday without him, and he must protect his home from two opportunistic burglars. Um, yes. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Merry Christmas, We're, we're getting everybody. to the, the Christmas episode a little early this year because there is a slightly more important event than Christmas this year. Which is, of course, Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens is going to be and, – and that's that's all I can think about. <laughs> and that's all – but we, we thought we should, um, as we have done in previous years, slot in a Christmas episode. And we thought that Home Alone was a good choice because it turns 25 this year. 25. Can you believe that? Well, I mean, I was really young when I first watched it. So, yes, yes I, I just, can. It's astonishing to me that this movie is 25 years old. Well, actually, looking at it today, and I, I don't know if we've got a new print of it or something, but it looks, uh, like, amazing. It could have been shot yesterday. I don't – some of the clothes are dated a little bit, but it does not look dated at all in terms of the quality of the shots. Of Catherine the O'Hara looks pretty dated. Yeah, uh, that was my sum clothing. Yeah. She, she looks a bit dated, not, not really – the rest of it. It's much. actually interesting to talk about her character, which is probably not where we should start. But, oh, but she's my favourite. <laughs> but she's. it's interesting that she's not so much written or performed, but codified as a businesswoman who doesn't have time for her kid. Yeah. Um. Yes, essentially. Like, I thought that was interesting. You don't really find out what she does, but, like, she clearly, yeah, she's wearing the power suits and the pearls and obviously the family. And the hair. Yeah. She had her own life apart from her kids, like, and her husband as well. So there's a point at which, uh, very early in the movie, Kevin comes in and he asks some dumb question. She's like, hey, "Kevin, I'm on the phone. Like, come back later." And then her husband says something really dumb of like, "Honey, did you buy a um a European adapter?" And she's like, "No, I didn't." And he's like, "How am I supposed to shave in Europe?" And she's like, "Grow a goatee." Like, it, why is it my problem that you don't have an adapter? And yeah. I, I really liked that because I was like, "That's mum having a life outside of her kids," and and I don't. I don't feel like it treats her too badly because as soon as she realizes she's left him behind, she actually makes incredible effort to get back to him. So it's not like she's punished for that in the same way. It's an interesting, it's only interesting in terms of the period and the, uh, the fact that this is a very, that was a very common trope at the time. Yep. Uh, It was a time at which women were going back to the workforce in droves. Uh, we've seen it in, um, oh, 95? Oh, yeah, yeah, um, which, which is 10 years loved. earlier, but yeah. No, but that's this is the period, right? This yep. is what I'm talking about. 80 to 1980 to 1990, the 80s specifically. Uh, yeah, so it's a period of, of working mothers because I think in the 70s you have women going – Sorry, and when we say women who work, women of colour and poor women have always worked. But middle class and upper class women going back to work in the – or going to work in the 70s 
there, I think a lot of that generation were becoming mothers in the 80s, so that's why this period is very particular. Right, that's that's mm. exactly it. And and that's that's the the stuff that you see in stuff like war games, which we did, and things mm, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you see that that trope of the working mother who doesn't have time for her kids. Even Goonies. And it's a negative. That's why the kids are at home. There's no one there. No. No, her mu- their mum is not demonised for not having... No, I'm not saying she's not demonised. I mean, I don't she's even think she's notified that because she comes she's home with working. shopping and stuff. Oh, maybe. So I don't even know if she... I mean, I do think she's working, but it's not in a she's a working mother who doesn't have time for her kids kind of story. Right, it's, it's a, okay, you're, yep, it's just right. that she's working, which yep. I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think that there's any point at which there's like a she doesn't have time for her kids and that's why they're like this yep. kind of a thing. Because um, they, they, they give equal wait to dad's work at like dad works at the museum and that's why they have all the stuff but yep. they they're equal parents very much mm. in that family there's no kind of like right he, he has to look after the kids because she's at work and or that she's at work and the kids aren't turning out right mm. or she's leaving them behind yeah. or anything kind of okay yeah it's very economically interesting because like the McAllisters probably can only afford that enormous house because mom and dad both work and now they expect mom and dad to both work and we can't afford anything yeah but that's not the point. The point is that it, yeah, she she's codified that way. But I don't feel like she's really performed that way, or even maybe I mean written that way to a certain extent. But it's never really implied that because she works, she doesn't have time for Kevin. No. It's more implied that Kevin is she. They're too busy with everything else that's going on, the family being there and stuff. It just seems to be the way that she's dressed and the way that she's coded in the movie more than mm. the way that she's actually. Is right, and she's weird. always bring like she's always very um, polished in her dress and like bringing out the way she's got that big folder of a wallet that she brings out, which I get think is a travel wallet, but anyway, she brings out this wallet and she's got like she's is, is it filing everything and which is it it it's kind of I kind of like the way they treat her honestly. Yeah, it's interesting because she could be demonized much more than she is, but I think the film is very understanding of the fact that they leave Kevin behind. Right. Which is interesting because uh, that kind of idea is so uh, controversial. Like the concept of occasionally you might not be the perfect parent 100% of the time is so controversial. And in my work, trust me, every single parent has at one point or another made a mistake that means a kid has had to stay at a place for a bit longer. Like, mm. every parent has done that. Or, uh, like, did you pick up the kids? No. Did you pick them up? No. Oh, no, we haven't picked up the kids kind of an idea. Or, or, or like, they forget that they've had a second kid and they leave the baby at home and drive off somewhere and they're like, shit, we've got to get back to get the baby. I've heard that story multiple times. Yeah, there's stuff yeah. like that. That just, it happens. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's not because they're terrible parents. It's because we are human beings. It's an interesting, I think, yeah, I don't think she'd be treated quite as nicely if she were made now. I think it was interesting, though, because I think um, John Hughes wrote it while he was preparing his own family to go to Europe. And I think he had about four kids. He had a lot of children anyway. I don't, I don't exactly know how many. But he, I think he kind of wrote it from a place of examining that anxiety as a parent. Yeah. So I think that's why he's he's so understanding with her and, and the whole circus that's going on. But it's also interesting, Dad never blames her for doing it. Uh, no. He's always just kind of, he, he seems to be a very easygoing guy. <laughs> he's mm. just always kind of supportive and stuff. And there's no 
there's none of that. I mean, nobody really blames her. No, for even doing the it airlines. Herself. Yeah, she's the only one beating herself up about it. There is also a weird disinterest in anybody else's lives throughout the whole movie, but mm. <laughs> everybody right. in this movie is really selfish. Yeah, well, apart that's... from um, old man Roberts Blossom next oh door. Oh, that story is like heartbreaking, but lovely. I think watching it for the first time since I was like. 10 or something it sort of has a different you, you see you pick up different things in it that yeah you, i saw it a couple of years ago so yeah I, I don't think i'd seen it since i was little and used to watch it all the time with my cousins but um we were all probably running around making a giant mess of ourselves but um not having seen it i found his storyline quite poignant well that's one of the things that they used to do so well is to weave in storylines for adults while also having the storyline for children mm. and then giving that moment of the adult and child connecting over these it's things. So it's really well made as a family movie. Like yeah. incredibly well made. I've must have watched this a dozen times and I could still happily probably watch it a dozen more with my kids. Like I don't have kids but I think that one of the interesting things about it is also the pacing of it is really interesting because it goes much more gently and slowly than you think it does because everybody when they think of Home Alone thinks of the ending. Thinks of when Kevin I think uh, of the two big I think of the race to the airport and the race through the airport and mum's race, like I think of the rushed bits, the race to the airport, and I think of the that ending. Right, but I think the connection with Home Alone, the the thought of Home Alone is the post, uh, the the picture of Kevin with all the weapons. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that change of filthy animal and all. Yeah, that. Yep. I think that's what Home Alone is: is the the idea of the kid uh, using all of these means to defend his home against the thieves. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of the high concept main plot idea. Yeah. But that only takes up about. 15, 20 minutes mm. of the movie. It's actually not as long as you think it's no, going it's to be. No, it's just the climax. And this yeah. is, I think, part of the problem with Home Alone, the later Home Alone movies, is that they make that the whole movie. Mm. Um, and what it does is it actually genuinely gives a child protagonist an arc and a journey that is interesting. He goes from being a real brat who is still probably not treated the best by his family. No. The, the bit where his uncle calls him a jerk in front of everybody and nobody stands yeah, and up every, for him is Yeah, and everybody awful. blames him for pushing his brother when his brother was also egging him on. Like as if that – but in any family, both of those kids are getting in trouble. Well, yes, but kids will – I think this is part of this, like, pipeline that John Hughes has into children's right, minds. Right, yeah. Is kids will always think, you're picking on me. Mm. And – even if the other kid gets in equal trouble, they think that they're being picked on. Yeah. And what possibly could have happened in the movie is mum took Kevin upstairs, went back downstairs, and then told Buzz off. But because Kevin just keeps going and going and going, yeah. she has to take him out of the situation before she can. Like yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I have seen no, myself. No, I, I, to- I now that you yes, it does. It makes a lot more sense when you think of it that way because it's a similar thing when he um, he accidentally steals a toothbrush and the policeman starts chasing him and there's this whole big thing. I think in real life it would have been a much less less of a drama, but because from his perspective, the naughtiest thing you can do is steal and then get in trouble with the police, it's like blown up beyond all proportion. Right. In so his that's head. what this movie is. I mean this movie is is all of those things that happen to him and happen to every kid, I think. Yeah. And then from his perspective. So everything is from Kevin's perspective. Um and they they kind of weave in mum's perspective and old mm. man Robert's Blossom's perspective and stuff like that where they, they're like, look, adults also have feelings. Adults also think about things and stuff where mm. I think it's really interesting and very I mean, this is this is I know it's directed by Chris Columbus, but this is what John Hughes does. John Hughes has 
this fundamental understanding of what it means to be a child or a teenager that 99% of filmmakers don't have. And it's one of the reasons why The Goonies is also something I like so much, which is written by Chris Columbus. So, you know, there's definitely a connection there. There's this understanding of children as people and as people who are figuring out what the world is and how they feel about that sort of thing and then bringing that to life on screen. And and one of the reasons also why it works so well is that ending brings out the kid in everybody, you know, Mm. and it's so clever and it's so clever in how it shows Kevin dealing with everybody, you know, not liking him and then wishing his family wasn't there and then actually realizing what it means to not have his family there and what he has to do for himself and him figuring out how to do that for himself. The really cute stuff where he puts the aftershave on his face every morning, even though it doesn't do anything and he doesn't realize that because just part of what dad does. And if he's going to be the responsible person, he has to do that and stuff like that. It's really, it's just really clever yeah that sort of microcosm of growing up of learning to stop being scared of things and just having to deal with them and stuff like that that everyone's kind of making it up as they go along and using your the tools you have and what you can improvise yeah and everything is sort of pitched right too because i was talking about joe pesci in the movie and joe Mm. pesci is an actor who uh we don't really think about very much i think we just sort of think of him as always having been there Mm. and be like the comedic one and stuff i mean if you look at uh, Joe Pesci, I think Goodfellas is the first thing that comes to most people's yep. minds, which is his big performance. But he is very good in this movie because he pitches his villain at exactly the right level to be scary, but not terrifying mm. and to be intimidating, but also weak in some ways. And, and, and Marv is like the comic relief villain. So he has to play the straight man but also uh, to be campy and silly a little bit, Mm. just enough that he's not – he's a genuine threat but not a terrifying threat. Yeah, and I think um, we started talking about this while we were watching it because I said that Joe Pesci sounded like Bugs Bunny and that's because Bugs Bunny is like a – an old 1930s noir era actor. Gangster. Gangster actor pitched at at a level for kids, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, he and then, you know, Marv is definitely for kids, but I think the way in which Harry Lime, by the way, um, <laughs> is his character's name, which is a third man reference, which is hilarious. Um, but the way in which his character is pitched is, is much more, it's a much more delicate and subtle operation than what Marv's doing. Mm. What's his name is doing? Daniel Stern. Thanks. And so it's more impressive to me because mm. he has to do something that's a little bit trickier. Yep. And both he and Catherine O'Hara, I think, are, are doing that. And also Macaulay Culkin can really carry a movie, I've right. forgotten. He's so good. Yeah. So much charm and, like, you're, you're really on his side from almost the beginning when he's, when he's like, told to pack a suitcase. You know, I don't know how to pack a suitcase. Well, yeah, but you're really uh, in his face as yeah. well. Like, he, he is in every scene, nearly. Mm. You know, he's not every scene, obviously, because we occasionally get the villains and mum, but he is – very much the center of this movie and he has nobody to play off and for a lot of no. it he is just just on his own a lot of the time mm. um and he does it very effectively well i think there's another that's another example of john hughes having a good sort of channel into a child's brain is that when you have 
like you're one of four kids and you live in this enormous house and there's always so much going on around you. The absolute freedom when you're a kid of being left alone. Forget a child's brain. Every time we get uh, oh my the house God. to ourselves, oh it's my like, God. yes, braless and chocolate and <laughs> TV. and Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. So true. Like a pizza to myself. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I, I'm like that. And um, and so, but, but I mean, the, the sheer freedom though when you're a kid because mm. pa- like part of childhood is that kind of part of the best part of childhood are those moments where there are no adults around and you're learning the boundaries, the rules of the jungle, how to be in life with other kids or on your own. Yeah. And I think the sheer freedom that he feels is just, I think that's amazing. Yeah. There's, uh, and I think you also need to talk about Chris Columbus. As, he's also a good director of children. Really good. Um, not so much some other things sometimes, but he is a really good director of children and he can bring that out in all in the kids, you know, to but get They also that. do something really clever in this film, which I, I noticed this time because I there's a really good oral history put together by James Hughes, John Hughes's son, where they interview a whole bunch of the key players in the film and the DOP is among them. And the DOP actually organized it so that you actually see everything from the child's height. The cameras are down just a few inches so that everything is from his perspective. So you really are seeing it from you you not only you're seeing this kid give this fantastic performance you're actually seeing this kid at the at the way that he sees himself i did notice that a couple of times but not through the whole thing because like there's distant shots and stuff where i, mm. I didn't notice that but but definitely where, where it's where you need to be on, in his perspective right because i noticed that in the supermarket was where i mm. noticed it um the most i noticed in that the opening chaos where the family is running around i noticed it as well um, and again, when he has the house to himself and he runs through the house and he's all through the different rooms, you see them from his height, I think, a bit more. I, I Yeah, I noticed it in the shopping one because he starts getting the stuff out of the thing, tr- mm. the trolley and he has to put it up. Yeah. And then you see the, the um, girl serving him from below. Um, it is, it's uh, really clever. But also, um, we have to talk about the music because, as you know, my, the music in this movie is my favourite part of this movie. This is a wonderful John Williams score. Oh, my goodness. I think it's one of the best John Williams scores because we always talk about his big – everybody always knows his big scores. He's done Indiana Jones and Star Wars and those are like the big, mm. you know, big famous ones. But this, the work in this movie is so perfectly evocative of both Christmas and a slight undercurrent of threat. Yes. And it is so pretty and it is so good. It is so good. I could just listen to the score for this movie and be happy. Yes. Yeah, it is just terrific. And it's like those those little bells that just kind of Yeah. No, that, that are that are both Christmassy but also just too much mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And um yeah, I, I love it. I love the music in this movie so much. It's so well done. I was just um while you're talking about that, I was looking for this oral history because I wanted to refer to it, but they almost didn't get John Williams for the score either, and they were just so lucky that they did because it really makes it. Mm, absolutely. Just, I think the whole way the th- this thing is sort of looks and feels and is put together is just, again, it's one of those everyone's at the top of their game kind of thing. Yeah. John Hughes at the top of his game, Chris Columbus at the top of his game, the you know the cinematographer at the top of their game. The, Diego something. Yeah, and, and John Williams I don't know at why I the top of that. his game. Seriously, like I don't – it's not something that – I just read it at the beginning of this movie this one time we saw it today and mm. just – anyway. John Williams, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's good because when – um, last week we talked about Creed and it had a female cinematographer. I found Marie out something. Yeah, um, I found out later that if she wins 
the best cinematographer Oscar and dear God, I'm on that train. I know, I know that Mad Max Fury Road cinematographer probably will take it out. But if she wins that, she'll be the first woman in 85 years to ever win. Like there's no woman has ever won the best cinematographer Oscar. So I now I've started paying attention to cinematographers because that's cinematographer to be for Mockingjay is a woman. Yeah, that's because that seems to be as atrociously gendered as directing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry, that's uh, off topic. I was now going to look up the of DLP all the thing. things Mad for Mad Max because it is so beautiful. I know, I know, he probably deserves it, but I also like, I mean, that one take flight and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think she, well, she does deserve to be at least in the running. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, I just the the colors and the yeah the, oh, no um. But uh, anyway, the cinematographer is Julio Macat. Ah, I was wrong. No, yeah. Um, anyway, not the point. No, um, not the point. But on top of his game in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, but I think the use of music is also really good because there's these moments when it cuts out and then it starts back up with the little, little notes and, and, uh, it's not just about like the score, which is really good, but the way they use the score. And I think this was a problem that I had with Creed, actually, where Creed every so often went too big at moments when they didn't need it mm. and not big enough in moments when they did. Yeah. And Home Alone never does that. Every single moment is just right in terms of where the score is. And the weaving in of um, Christmas songs as well, like because they, yeah. they, they stop scoring. Good soundtrack. Like the bit of the church at the end mm. where um, Carol of the Bells, that's just amazing. Yeah. I, I'm sure I had this soundtrack because every single track on it is very familiar to me. Well, um, um, yeah, me too. But like I said, I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. But yeah, it's it's really uh, everyone is picked right. Like when you hear the rocking around the Christmas tree and there's mm-hmm. everybody dancing in the house. Yes. Like the fake people dancing in oh, the that's house. So, that scene is so well done. Yeah, it is. It's really cute. Um, and what's the Carol of the Bells one? And there's one more that I can't remember now. Although I did completely forget that there was that Santa Claus scene in it. Mm, yeah. I had uh, that scene took me by surprise. I was like, I don't remember this ever happening. No. And I've watched this movie a few times as well. And I just don't remember. It's, cut, that it's scene one of those all. sort of non sequiturs that you forget about. Yeah. I think it might have been placed wrong in the movie. Mm. Like if it had been in, at a place where he'd been out and maybe been chased or he was like looking dejected going over the bridge or something like that. And then he'd gone straight oh, no, to I, the. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It can't, it kind of makes sense. He knows that he's going to be in trouble and this is what he really wants to ask for. But. I just, no, but it comes. Doesn't it come after a scene that's not? I think it's related a, it comes after a scene. Isn't maybe I'm mixing it up, but it's, I thought it came after the scene where he finds out what time the bad guys are going to come to his house. Yeah, it probably does. So it's sort of to me that felt like no, he, when he heard that out. When he heard that, he was like, being a kid, his first thought was to like ask the people you can rely on, and you can rely on Santa Claus. So. Like, ask whoever you can for help. I know how this works. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you're not Santa, but you work for him. It's I so know. Cute. Adorable. And then when he says nice shoes to the girl, it's yeah. so cute. Well, that, that, and you can just see him, like, picking that up from his brother, who's probably picked it up from other men who were like, oh, yeah, that's how you get girls to like you. Oh, I didn't read it that way. I oh. just read it as, like, he saw her shoes and liked them. Like, I, I, I like that. Because there's better. a shot of the shoes when he walks up. And, of course, he's. You know, he's seeing these and, enormous green, yeah, yeah, and he just genuinely went, "Hey, I like your shoes." They're yeah, cool. and, and he's eight; he probably does want shoes like that. Yeah. Plus, he doesn't ever. I think the women in this movie are actually treated fairly well. Yeah. There's no point at which like anybody is experiencing sexism, unless it's from Buzz, who isn't a great kid yeah, anyway. He's, he's coded as an awful child, right? So. No, so, and and even like they even have Kevin pick up one of Buzz's Playboy magazines, and the Playboy magazine just has people women's faces on it. And then he's like, eh, 
meh. No, no, no. And he he's goes, like, no, there's no clothes on anyone. It's gross. Yeah. <laughs> they it away. So yeah. I don't, I don't think that that was intended as a, no. like, he is trying to butter her up so much as he was genuine in his, I like your shoes. Yeah. And then she, like, had a connection with him where she was like, oh, he's a nice kid mm. rather than a, yeah. an intended, yeah. like, trying to win her over moment. I think, in fact, I think Kevin never tries to win anybody over. I think anybody who is won over by him is, genuinely charmed by him mm. um i'm thinking also of the the supermarket scene again yeah. where he's trying to act like an adult yeah and the the girl is just like you're adorable but this is not working <laughs> um stuff like that i think is is i i think it's much more I, I i don't feel like this movie is it's cynical in the way that everybody is selfish and they don't care but they they kind of have to do that in order to keep the plot going like the mr heckles cop in the police station, the guy yeah, from yeah, family yeah, services yeah. Mm-hmm. and he, they just keep transferring him back and yep. that sort of thing where it's like they can't help because of the plot. Yeah. But at the same time, you're sort of like, I f- feel like people would be more engaged with this. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. they go, we'll just send somebody by. And right. Somebody and by. But that, that's the whole, the whole movie. They can't be because of the plot. But you would think like that airlines would probably move. Airlines would probably make a big effort in that kind of circumstance to help and her out. And then publicise what they've done, yeah. Right, exactly. And you you would think, like, especially as the movie is one long bit of product placement for American Airlines, you'd think that maybe, like, in real life, American Airlines, if they had a mother there, like, and they do at the start try, when they're on the plane, they try and call from the plane. Um, they let her call him from the plane, which I think would have been very unusual in 1990. Um, John Hughes also made planes, trains, and automobiles. How much of that do you think was influenced by him just wanting to keep the John Candy character from this movie going? Probably. <laughs> it's really, really, like watching it this time, it was really obvious that he was playing basically exactly the same character as he plays in. I was actually, I when I was, you know, eight, I didn't know about Midwesterners and Midwestern stereotypes. So that was kind of funny this time. The the humor of this so this character who's so Midwestern and so polite, nice and kind and also is a um like they're in a what is it, the, the poker band thing and they they're like we sold six hundred copies and that, yeah. that's kind of, I thought that was kind of adorable as well. Obviously he's having a field day and I don't know how much of that he was improvising, but I suspect it was a lot. A lot. Yeah. Just because some of the lines he comes out with where he leaves the kid at the funeral home <laughs> and, you know, the wife and I were all upset and then <laughs> he was okay like six, six seven, seven weeks, weeks later and he started talking again. Yeah, and that it runs on. It's beautiful. Given that he's with Catherine O'Hara, especially in that yeah. scene, it does definitely make it seem like there's a lot of improv in there because mm. um, there's also the bit earlier when he says, poker something, poker blah, 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 all the songs. And yeah, she yeah. goes, oh, they're songs. And you can see her playing up the I'm tired, I've been awake yeah. for 60 hours, I don't know what's happening. And him, like they, they do very well together. Yeah. Their scenes together are very funny. Yes, um, that's right. And she's a an- – And pitched at a very different level, I think, from a lot right. of the Right, that movie. was – I was looking at that as well because she's she's a second city person yeah as well so she's a well-known comedic performer so yeah i think they they do work very well i think it was probably just a we should get john candy into this movie it'd be really funny and that's one of those things that's pitched at the adults as well that whole bit yeah but it's still funny for kids i think oh yeah because he's big and fat and kind and like doesn't stop talking about pokers and and the mother's all confused and he's just like so over enthusiastic and then yeah but the, I think right, there's officer, the clarinet and yeah, there's levels to that yeah. part of it there, that there aren't necessarily in the rest of the movie. Um, the movie does a really good job of uh, giving you a really good sense of what the house looks like as well, like the setup of the house well before we go through it to do yep. the all the traps. Yes. Um, so that it's never confusing 
Yeah. You always know exactly what's going to, you know, when he moves them up through the house, you know where he's going and what's going yeah. on there. It's really clever. Yes, I think that's good. Um, That's a good way of doing the finale without having to set up all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Don't know how he cleaned up the house afterwards. No. What about the use of violence in this movie? Yeah, well, because that finale is super violent. Super violent. And it's pitched at, you know, eight-year-olds. No, it's pitched at ten plus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, iTunes says ten plus for this movie, even though the lead is eight. And let's face it, all of us watched it when we were like five. Then again, I also well, watched Indiana Jones. I didn't Indiana come Jones out until I was eight, so I didn't watch it all until right. I was at least oh, eight. Oh, I would have been seven, yeah. Well, I think the, the kind of violence at the end probably falls into a similar category of like being so benignly understanding of a mother who left her kid behind in that it probably wouldn't get made today like that. No. Kids move there's no way a kids movie today is Although do the that. most recent sequel did happen in around two thousand. Right. I think. I think there were four. Yeah, um, okay. But yeah, it it's but the thing about it is that it's cartoon violence. And I think that's yeah. kind of important. And it's also they're always like there there is always a consequence for the baddies, but the consequence is never like life threatening. Although if it really real, is, <laughs> if in real life you had any of those kind of falls, it would be life threatening. But they're or all kind of hit in the head with a paint can, or and they, yeah. But they burning show, the burning the head could have easily been life threatening. Yeah, but they show so they show the violence and they show the consequence as not being life threatening. Yeah, so it's kind of like it's a bit cartoonish, and I mean. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know how many kids watched this and then actually rigged up their house like that to stop bad guys, but not many. I yeah. Would wager. Um. But I don't. I don't know. It's sort of. It's so integral to the story that the the ending goes the way it does. I know, and it's in, it is interesting because they talk about violence affecting kids and stuff. But you know, we saw this as kids and. We're more or less okay, right? Yeah, well, I just, for a sample size of two. Really, I just really like watching people beat people up. What's the problem in that? No. And it's, well, it's, but it is no. I mean, it's no worse than a, a lot of the Bugs Bunny cartoons where you know you see people yeah, hit over the head with anvils. Cartoon. And, yeah, I think kids are, especially if you're sort of you know eight plus, you probably have you know the difference between cartoon violence and real violence. I think it's not just that. There's there's definitely a sense of like. These people are trying to get into his home and are trying to menace a child. Mm, so they and deserve the, it. Yeah, it's a just dessert sort of a thing. Right, and you see them getting... But we're always teaching kids that violence is never the answer. In this case, you know, mm, could have they- really just called the cops and said... These guys are going to come to my house trying at this time. Trying to break into my house. But he's probably still scared well, that the cops will arrest him yeah. for stealing that one toothbrush that one Right, time. right. Or that they will, like, ta- make, take him away from the house because he's on his own and put him in protective yeah. – co- like, I'm sure he's got all kinds of good reasons for not calling the cops. But, yeah, the, the violence feels like it was deserved upon these characters. It, it does also, give the stunt team a chance to shine. And there's also things like um, they just keep going, like they're not hurt. You know, you see it all the time in movies, I guess, people getting shot and stuff. But these guys don't even – there's a nail through the guy's foot and he just keeps walking around. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And there's no blood. No, no. It just burns and stuff. Um, Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know about the message it's teaching. He's definitely um innovative. Yeah, well, I mean – creative. The, I think the message that it gives children is that when people try to bully you, use the tools you have to – serve them some revenge. Okay, that's not a great message. Um, no, I think the I message think the that it gives is, children is that you can be self-reliant yeah. and also really care about your family and want them 
yes, to be around. Yes. But you like you don't have to rely on your family to do every single thing for you. You can do it. But like, you know, it's also important to care about your family and Yeah, stuff. Y- y- yes. So yes, that is And ask for help when you need it cuz if Robert's Blossom hadn't come in right at the end, I just really like that guy's name. Yeah, <laughs> the actor. Um if he hadn't come in right at the end, then Macaulay Culkin would have had his fingers eaten by Joe Pesci, which is a really weird threat. Yeah. Joe Pesci comes up with a couple of weird threats. There's a balls joke earlier in the Yeah, movie. like I'll take your cojones and, and that, boil and, them yeah, or something. Yeah, it, it's said that seems a little out of place in a kids movie as well. <laughs> very odd. But anyway, oh, well that could have been a, a Joe Pesci improv. Who knows? It could have. Do you want to give it a rating? Oh, yes. I have to rate this movie. I, You know I didn't even think of it before now. I want to give it five stars. Okay. I'm going to give it four. All right. Thank you very much for listening to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. If you would like to read our show notes or find old episodes or tickets to our screening of Star Wars The Force Awakens in Canberra, you can do that on our website, silverscreenqueens.com. If you want to find us on social media, we are on Twitter at screen underscore queens. We're on Facebook and we're on Tumblr, tumblr.silverscreenqueens.com. And if you want to read Katie's review of any new movies that she watches, head on over to her blog at silverscreenqueen.wordpress.com because she has 19 movies to watch this month, so there'll be a few. Well, I started the month with 21. I've done two so far. Woohoo! Yeah, so thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.